Hi there and welcome. This podcast chronicles my travels around the state of Ohio in the year leading up to the 2020 presidential election, interviewing my fellow Buckeye voters, hearing their stories, their hopes and their fears, their worries and concerns, and learning how those things influence how they're thinking politically as we head into another presidential election. My name is Pete Brown, and this is Ohio 2020. Hello again, everybody. This is Pete Brown, and we are continuing to release the interviews that we recorded for the This is Ohio 2020 project before the pandemic shut us down. Today, you'll hear my talk with Cody Cook of South Lebanon, Ohio. Cody is in his early 30s. He's a young dad, and he's a libertarian. And that was one of the reasons I was excited to get him on the show. But more than that, Cody is really a man of faith. And we talk a, a good deal about his faith journey in this interview. You know, he did go to Bible school. He's done a lot of writing about how the Bible sees political power. And in fact, when we did our first interview with Cody, we, we actually were at his church when we did it. But Cody was very patient with me explaining how he understands libertarianism. And he does plan on voting for the libertarian candidate. I did manage to catch up with Cody last week, too, to talk through really the past year and how he sees the pandemic impacting the election and the different ways he sees libertarians reacting to the pandemic. So we'll play that part after our main interview. Stay tuned for that. You can find Cody's books on Amazon. He also publishes a podcast called Cantus Firmus, which is available where you get podcasts or at Cantus, C-A-N-T-U-S dash Firmus, F-I-R-M-U-S dot com. Okay, here's our initial interview. My name is Cody Cook. I'm 32 years old. I live in South Lebanon, Ohio. I work in IT, and I'm a writer. Okay. So thank you for your time, first of all. Oh, thank you. Uh, and we start at the beginning. Tell me where you grew up. So I always grew up kind of in the southwestern Ohio, right around Cincinnati area. Bounced around a little bit, but kind of always just right around here. My, my mother's parents had started a small business here that does like antique furniture and pottery reproduction. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of always around that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it gave me a little bit of an interest in, in the arts and also sort of seeing how a small business is run from the inside yeah. and all the complications <laughs> that come up. Sure. Did you have uh, brothers or sisters? Or? Yeah, a half-brother, older half-brother, and uh, one younger sister. Okay. And what kind of kid were you? I think I was kind of an independent kid. I was always told I was, you know, well-behaved, but I spent a lot of time kind of reading and kind of doing things on my own, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What kind of stuff would you do for fun? I guess it depends on the age. I got interested in filmmaking when I was pretty young, so did a lot of things along those lines, trying out different short films and things like that. I enjoyed reading. I felt like I watched a lot of TV, (laughs) and that was probably sort of formative, I guess, for me in a lot of ways, Yeah, as I suppose it is for, for many people. Yeah. But especially a lot of like Comedy Central and Mystery Science Theater 3000 and yeah. things that sort of gave me a, maybe more of a sarcastic yeah. <laughs> approach to, to people in life. Okay. Where'd you go to high school? Went to high school, uh, Little Miami. Okay. Yep. And did you do activities or? I was, I didn't really do much. You know, when I was in, in grade school, I almost won a couple spelling bees. <laughs> okay. And by the time I got to high school, I think 
I had a lot of frustrations with uh, what I sort of saw as sort of arbitrary authority. <laughs> okay. And so I think I had probably a more adversarial attitude okay. toward the whole school system. Yeah. So <laughs> let's see. Let me ask, is this a fair paraphrase? You were kind of an, an arts-inclined kid, very independent-minded. You liked reading. You probably watched a lot of stuff, which made you want to make stuff. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's yeah. fair. Would they call you like an arty kid in high school or just recalcitrant? Maybe recalcitrant because <laughs> I didn't, I mean, I didn't like hang out. You know, there were the kids who were the art kids who yeah. were there always there yeah, late yeah. and doing projects. I wasn't really that kid. I was kind of doing my own thing more. I tried to get in some school plays and my grades were never good enough to, gotcha. <laughs> to let me stay. I gotcha. So let me ask this because I know we're, we're here in the church. We're going to talk about your faith and stuff like that, but was that part of your growing up? When I was very young, um, my dad's family was Southern Baptist, more traditional. And um, as happens with a lot of people in a, in a more conservative environment, they kind of reacted against that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was, I think I became an atheist pretty young and then came back around to it kind of near the end of high school. I started moving back in that direction. Okay. What, what did you do after high school? Uh, so after high so I, so like I said, I started to come back to Christian faith after high school. And because I have an obsessive compulsive sort of personality type, I said, okay, I guess I should probably go to like Bible college or seminary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I found a, found a school downtown like a small Methodist school and I started going there. And so that sort of gave me um, a lot of background and sort of theology and yeah. understanding the Bible and yeah. church history and that kind of stuff. Can I ask what brought you back? There was a lot of factors. I think part of it was, I think, coming to terms with certain theological issues that I struggled with. So Southern Baptist Church, you, you hear a fair bit about, you know, hellfire and stuff like that. Sure. And uh, I had a friend who was Seventh-day Adventist. They take a view on hell called annihilationism or mm -hmm. conditionalism which is that the ultimate end of the damned is not eternal conscious torment, but destruction. Mm -hmm. or, or they say it in a different, another way to say it is that the natural state of man is, is, is death, but mm -hmm. that the gospel is the good news about eternal life. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so that, I think, removed an obstacle for me. It gave me right. more open. Another thing was, it's hard to explain, uh, but sort of feeling like God's presence in a way uh, that was difficult to argue against, even though I did. So mm -hmm. you, you kind of get, I got to a point where I sort of said, okay, you know, God, leave me alone. I want to be an atheist. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and that didn't work out for very long. He didn't so, listen. Yeah. It was, it was kind of an incoherent, you know, that kind of incoherence doesn't last for very yeah. long usually. Yeah. But it sounds like, and you mentioned a couple of times, like problems with arbitrary authority. Sure. You know, and uh, being that kind of kid growing up in that faith tradition, having a lot of rules around mm -hmm. it. Right. I yeah. could be reacting to this. Is that? That's probably fair. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, feeling like the sort of God that's being presented is arbitrary or unfair or cruel. Yeah. And then, you know, also being part of a, you know, a school system where, you know, ultimately they're trying to manage a lot of kids. Yeah. And so the rules do become very arbitrary. Everybody is sort of treated as a criminal because you want to try to contain everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, just, yeah, I would say that's probably fair that I reacted against what I sort of thought was unfair, arbitrary authority in, mm -hmm. in a lot of spheres. Okay. And so let me ask you this. I don't know if the, you'll have an answer for it. When you're in high school and before you're starting to feel this pullback to the church, what was your plan? <laughs> That's a great question. So, 
So when I was in high school, I read a lot of like Abby Hoffman and the Black Panthers, and <laughs> okay. I was kind of <laughs> that sort of. I grew long hair and smoked pot because I thought you know that was yeah. I you know I was I sort of I, I, like I said I, I smoked pot for political reasons if mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah which doesn't make that much sense when I was growing up but it made a lot of sense in the sixties sure. so anyway I was I was sort of yeah. put it in the wrong time I guess yeah. for that so I don't really know that I had a strong plan I mean I wasn't even sure if I was going to stay in high school mm-hmm. um, but I had this sort of you know radical kind of anti authority anti mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Before, before I started going to Bible college and before I became a Christian, I don't know for sure what my approach was. I, I guess I probably thought, I don't know. I mean, some people, I guess, can make a living being rabble rousers, but mm-hmm. not very many. But maybe right. that was my plan. That's what you were good at. Yeah. Rabble rousing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so you're at a small Bible school in Cincinnati, downtown mm-hmm. Cincinnati. And how, how, how is that going? And how long did you study there? So I went, so it actually took me a long time to get my bachelor's because mm-hmm. I was, couldn't really get anything as far as grants, and I didn't mm-hmm. want to get into debt with student loans. I so I just sort of took classes as I, as I could afford it. Mm-hmm. So I finished up my bachelor's just a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and my um, master's, I'm about halfway through, I kind of worked on it at the same time. Okay. So, And bachelor's was in divinity? Or? Uh, bachelor's in, I guess it would be Bible and theology. Okay. Yeah. And your master's? Master's pretty much the same. Same, same topic. Okay, yeah. makes sense. Same school for your master's? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We took, there's, there's a seminary in Mississippi that, Wesley Biblical Seminary that they teamed up with. And yeah. so they, were, they offered some classes through there. So it was a little double dipping in both. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. When you're in this period where you're kind of coming back, did you look around for different churches or did you go to the church that you would go back to the churches that you went to as a kid or? Yeah, so I mentioned my friend who was Seventh Day Adventist, yeah. and they go to church on Saturday. Yeah, so I found a Seventh Day Adventist church, but because I was really interested in theology and religion, yeah. my Sundays were free and open. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time going to different churches on Sundays, yeah. Mennonite churches, house churches, found a Messianic synagogue that met on Friday nights. And that was really cool, kind of Jewish background stuff. Mm-hmm. So I hopped around on Sundays, yeah. but I my main church for a long time there was that Saturday Seventh Day Adventist church. So you were really seeking. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would say I was like seeking this, you know, that people talk about like seekers, people who are looking for existential answers or I think at that point I felt, you know, Jesus is, I got the Jesus thing. That works for me. That's good. But I think I was trying to get a broader sense of the tradition. I was trying to understand better. Yeah. I think, what what is it? uh, Augustine said, faith seeking understanding. Mm -hmm. So I was just, you know, maybe trying to have a more, a broader perspective than maybe, um, I would have been raised in, in that sort of Southern Baptist. I, I understand. I understand. Yeah. Okay. And then how did you get into IT work? By default. So the, the, the small business that my grandfather started, you know, after all the economic stuff that was happening around 2008, mm-hmm. things, you know, they, we lost a lot of employees. I actually yeah. stopped working there for a while and yeah. was a server at Johnny Rockets hamburger joint. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, you know, sort of coming back there and helping out some more, we lost the main IT guy and I was basically poised to do it just because I had an understanding right. of how a lot of that stuff worked. So I took some IT classes to kind of help me uh, get a better grip on some of those details. But basically it was just because anytime there was a computer issue after the IT guy was gone, they asked me to help. Yeah. So it yeah. became my job. I gotcha. I gotcha. Did you become a vegetarian after working at Johnny Rockets? No, I, I, became, <laughs> I became a vegetarian probably in second grade oh, wow. and I kept it up for a couple of years 
And then I spent maybe a couple of years eating meat again and then back, back at it again, probably. Actually, I think I probably, when I came back to it, I think I probably gave up pork first because I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, <laughs> like the eighth grade or something. And then I just kind of went vegetarian. And actually, I'm pretty much vegan at this point. If there's a little dairy or egg in something, I don't really care, but more strict. Vegetarian. So if, uh, if you were my server at Johnny Rockets and I said, what's good? You'd be like, oh. I would say, well, they had, they had the Boca veggie burgers. Yeah. Yeah. So I would do I the, so. there was one called the Route 66, which was like a mushroom and Swiss. And they had this like sort of spicy ketchup. So I would get that yeah. without the Swiss. And I would sub a, a Boca penny yeah. for it. Yeah. And so you just said you, you read the autobiography of Malcolm X in eighth grade. That's probably about then. Yeah. yeah. Not really an eighth grade level book. Probably not. Yeah. But you know, that's still, you know, even though I, I don't agree with them really on anything, it was really a formative book for me. Yeah. I think just because what's fascinating as you read the book is he's writing it over this period of time. Yeah. And so when he starts writing it, he's in the nation of Islam yeah. and he is just the front man for Elijah Muhammad. Whatever Elijah Muhammad says is, you know, the gospel. Yeah. And as he's writing the book, he comes to terms with Elijah Muhammad's philandering and being, mm-hmm. you know, basically full of it. Yeah. And, um, makes the shift on a lot of things. So he changes his mind when it comes to religion. Yeah. He changes his mind when it comes to racism because mm-hmm. he accepted the, the Nation of Islam story that white man was made by a mad scientist mm-hmm. <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So I think what really impressed me with Malcolm X is the whole book is him making this journey and being willing to sort of come up against truth yeah. and being willing to change even yeah. when it's painful. Yeah. And so for me, I think that was very formative. Yeah. I really appreciated that quality in him. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So, okay, so now we have you doing some IT work, right, and uh, kicking around Southwest Ohio, Mm -hmm. and you described yourself as a writer, so talk to me about what you like to write. Yeah, so, um, you know, mostly kind of in that vein of theology, I wrote one of the last books I wrote deals with, like, kind of political theory from a Christian perspective as well. Yeah. So, you know, I think just really kind of pulling apart some of these broad themes that you find in the Bible and try to apply that to life in a way that sort of makes sense. Sure. Kind of big picture stuff, I guess. Okay. But all, all theology based. Yeah. 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 Well, yes, but I've, I've mostly, so I've done some writing. So my company does a, my grandfather does an article, a quarterly article for a magazine on like sort of primitive arts and you mm-hmm. know, the crafts, that kind of thing. And so I've helped out with some of those articles and, right. and have a kind of a shared byline on some of that. And so yeah. that stuff's pretty cool because we've, I get to do a lot of historical research, and yeah. I love I love research, so yeah. that's really fun. I got you. So let's talk about your podcast. Okay. All right. I'm you, I know you told me this already, but tell me the name and what it means again. Sure. Uh, the podcast is called Cantus Firmus, hmm. which I should have picked one that's easier to spell, but it's uh, C-A-N-T-U-S, and then the, the next word is F-I-R-M-U-S. Mm-hmm. And so the podcast and the website, the blogs or whatever, the, the name comes from something I pulled from one of the letters that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in prison. He was a, a German theologian who resisted the Nazis. Yeah. And uh, the, the term comes from, it's, it's actually a musical term. It's a Latin term that refers to a central melody that other melodies might play around. Yeah. And so he used it as a, this way of trying to sort of create a Christian approach to life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have these sort of approaches sometimes that are, you know, Jesus is everything or God is everything yeah. and everything else is suspect. Right. And I think the way he sort of saw it is, you know, all these things that we go through in our life are, are good and fine. You just have to arrange them properly, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, keep a center. And so for him, Christ was that center. So 
what I try to do with the podcast is whether we're talking about you know politics or the arts or philosophy or whatever, try to keep that central line coming through it. Yeah. yeah. So, and you've been doing it for a few years. I'm not exactly sure, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, very cool. Okay, and you're married? I'm married, yes. And when did that happen? That happened, goodness gracious, you're going to have to make a cut here in case my wife listens to this. That's fine. <laughs> he um, totally knows. <laughs> so that, hap- that happened in June, let's see, 20, 2015, I think. I think I came yeah. up on my uh, fifth anniversary. And how did you meet your wife? We actually met in school. She was attracted to me, I think, because I was a rebel, mm-hmm. but I had another girlfriend at the time, mm-hmm. and so it didn't really work out until, you know, some yeah. years later. Sure. <laughs> it came back around. I got you. I got you. Yeah. And did, do you have kids? I have one child. Yeah, one daughter. And how, how's that transition to parenthood been? I, I like it. I mean, I, you know, I really enjoy it. It's really cool, you know, raising a kid and, you know, sharing things that you think are interesting or, you know, important to you with them. How old is she? She is... Seven, just turned seven. Seven, yeah. Yeah. Did you, did it change how you see the world at all? I think it did in some ways. You know, I know we're going to talk about politics later, but there's, there was a line in a Gil Scott Heron song where he was talking about, he was a, you know, kind of a poet musician in the 70s. Yeah. And he was talking about, because he was interested in some of these causes involving like black liberation. Yeah. And, yeah. But he, he, in this song here, this poem, he, he was talking about interacting with sort of more of the hippies, like kind of white countercultures. Mm-hmm. And, he said, you know, you know, I'm interested in, you know, feeding my family and, you know, being able to pay my rent. You yeah. guys are interested in having sex in the streets. Yeah. And so I think, you know, for me, as I see a lot of the kind of more the radical ends of the spectrums on these political issues, they're, they're kind of getting wrapped up in these sort of sex in the streets causes mm-hmm. <laughs> and not so much in like what I think most people are really interested in, which is, you know, having a job taking care of your family mm-hmm. and, you know, just being able to make it through. Right. And so I think it's changed me in some ways. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I guess, shifted my priorities, right? Because mm-hmm. once you have the kid, that becomes very yeah. central to what you're doing. Yeah. But I don't know if I, I don't know if it's shifted my philosophy necessarily. I guess Christianity has, has always kind of had a more right. <laughs> open to familial kind of, sure. you know, responsibilities sure. approach. But Okay. Makes sense. Well, let's talk about politics a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, tell me how you describe yourself politically. I think I would describe myself as a libertarian, broadly. And I think sometimes I swing sort of more constitutionalist, and other times I probably swing slightly into anarchism. Sure. No, uh, maybe on a bad day. Yeah. But uh, So, yeah, basically broadly libertarian. Okay. And what does that mean to you? Well, I think what that means to me, I should have had an answer totally worked out for this, but I guess what that means to me is, you know, kind of like that, that Gil Scott Heron line is that, you know, we, we kind of just want to be able to live our lives Mm -hmm. and mind our own business. I think what, what gets most people interested in the political causes they're in is primarily fear. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because we have built this, this society wherein the government is so powerful, especially the office of the president now is so powerful Mm -hmm. that we are terrified of losing privilege or power or being targeted. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people came out in the last election either because, you know, maybe they were a minority and they were afraid of what that meant for them if Trump is president. Mm-hmm. How does that change either policy or the culture? Mm-hmm. And then you had people, you know, like on the religious right who felt like we're losing influence mm-hmm. to the secular left. And, you know, we may be, you know, put in jail if we don't, you know, support gay marriage or whatever. There's all yeah. these concerns. 
that people have. And they're all based on the fact that the government really can do more than it should be able to do. <laughs> and so we get terrified and we go to the polls because we want to use force to support ourselves against our enemies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I feel like that's a big part of the problem with, you know, this, what's the term where you have sort of two opposite ends sort of fighting against each other. We're sort polarization. Of polarization. Yeah. Thank you. The, the, the big issue with polarization is that we're just terrified of each other mm-hmm. because we, we are so afraid of what other people can do with political power against mm-hmm. us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so for me, what I like about libertarianism is it's basically saying, you mind your business, I mind my business. You know, yeah. if you want to, if you want to, you know, be gay and go to Episcopalian church and have a wedding, good for you. That's wonderful. That's fine. If you yeah. want to smoke pot, you're allowed to do that. Yeah. And I'm also allowed to believe what I want to believe and, you know, you know, raise my kids and whatever. Yeah. And so I think, that is a big pull for me there. And, and I think that for me is what is beneficial about libertarianism mm-hmm. and, and also not having to sell out because I, you know, looking at the way evangelicals moved for Trump, you know, there was a poll done in 2011 where evangelicals were asked, can a president be immoral in his mm-hmm. personal life and still serve the office well? Mm-hmm. And at the time, evangelicals at about, about 70, 72% said, no, he can't. Yeah. That same poll was done in 2016 yeah. when Trump is the front runner. Sure. And now it's 30% of evangelicals who say, no, that's not possible. Yeah. yeah. And, and so for me, being able to say, you know, I am going to be committed to my values mm-hmm. and I'm not going to, I was going to say bend over. That's a little crude. I'm not going to compromise what I really think is right sure. because I'm, because I want to have somebody on my side. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it's fascinating to me that the Christian church, which in, the first and second centuries was willing to be martyred rather than, you know, offer a sacrifice for Caesar right. <laughs> um, or even join the army right. um, is now saying, you know, well, you know, if he's going to be on our side, then we should support him a hundred percent. Yeah. So anyway, well, I'm going to ask a religious question Yeah. and I, I'm not brushed up on religion. So it may seem pretty basic, but yeah, it seems to me, when people press evangelical voters, what you just said mm-hmm. on Trump's morality, you know, he's on his third wife and all these other things about him. They now say Christ is about forgiveness and second chances. And it seems convenient to me. Yeah. Interesting that you didn't hear a lot of that when Clinton was president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly that's true. Mm-hmm. But I mean, at the same time, it's I mean, I think forgiveness also is one of those things that. I mean, do you give somebody a second chance when they're, when they actually haven't changed? <laughs> I mean, right. you know, forgiveness, sure, I get it. Yeah. But I mean, if you're going to say, well, you know, he did all these things, but he's a different person yeah. now. Well, I mean, well, where's the evidence of that? Yeah. And so I think it is a convenient excuse. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to try and summarize libertarianism as you explained it to me, which is um, core value of people taking care of their own business, allowing other people to take care of their business. Limiting the power of government so that you can pull down that fear, right? Which you which you feel like is driving people. Sure, that's, that's at least one benefit of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So tell me now. We're going into twenty twenty as a libertarian. What are what are the issues that concern you the most going into this election? Well, you know, on the one hand, I think as a libertarian, we're naturally pessimistic, but we're also optimistic in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, 
I think we, we tend to think that the government generally does bad things. <laughs> but we also sort of look at how bad we think everything is and how badly it's managed and say, yeah, but everything seems to be working pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I'm interested in is when, you know, during the last election, I really thought, you know, Trump is kind of dangerous. He doesn't know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's, he's rash. He's petty. He takes everything personal. But I'm surprised that on a, with the exception of a couple issues, things aren't really as bad as they could have been, mm-hmm. as like I thought they might be. Sure. And I think, you know, we've managed to get through it because, you know, on some level, you know, while the government is not always doing very good things, most things happen in our day-to-day interactions. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, I have a lot of friends who watch the news constantly and they have this, you know, hatred or fear of Trump. And I sort of say, you know, if you stopped watching the news, would Trump actually affect your life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think for most people, I mean, apart from, you know, kids locked in cages at the border, right. the answer is no, yeah. it, it doesn't. And so, you know, there are issues that I, I guess when it comes to like, on the national level, voting booth type stuff, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, I think Bernie's got a pretty good chance of getting it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had friends who said, you know, the, the status quo is so bad that, you know, Trump would have to be better. And I said, hey, you could also be worse. I mean, you just, just because sure. the status quo is bad doesn't mean any change is good. Yeah. And I sort of feel the same way about kind of a more radical left approach, yeah. that it could also be equally bad. Sure. So really, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are talking about some big ideas, mm-hmm. you know, universal health care, uh, education, free education. As a libertarian, I think that would scare you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not a big fan. of. I mean, part of it is, you know, I, I think on the left, there's this kind of, um, especially the very progressive left, there's this idea that can't really be challenged, that things are getting worse. Mm-hmm. But if you really look at it, I mean, what was the, I, I, I'm trying to remember numbers now, statistics about uh, people living in extreme poverty, like less than $2 mm-hmm. a day. In just the last 30 years, that number has gone down from, I think, like 35% to 10. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of that's globalization. A lot of that is not exactly free, free market, but freer right. market principles spreading across the world. I think that's a good thing. So, you know, if there's an issue where I think that'll kind of maybe pull me a little bit away from libertarianism sometimes, at least emotionally, I mean, I think about, you know, insurance, you know, health insurance for everybody. That's a tough one because yeah. you want everybody to be covered. Yeah. On the other hand, when you look at costs of living and, and, and costs of various goods and services that people buy, and you take just about anyone over the last 30 or 40 years mm-hmm. uh, or more, all of them are going down except for the ones that government subsidizes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all the ones we're really concerned about, health insurance, the cost of food, the cost of living, or like, you know, rent or mortgage, sure. all those things are going up. All the things that government, schooling especially, mm-hmm. uh, all those things that government has tried to subsidize, the costs have gone up. Mm-hmm. And so even if you know, I can emotionally understand why we'd want those things to be subsidized. I also kind of go, yeah, but is that actually going to work as well as we think it's going to? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's part of it. And also, you know, this is maybe where, you know, a libertarian or conservative minded person can sound kind of greedy, but, you know, I took more than 10 years to get my bachelor degree mm-hmm. because I didn't want to get into debt. Right. And I feel like, you know, I know these kids are 18 years old and they're sure. being pushed into doing things that they shouldn't do. They're kind of stupid. But at the same time, it's like, Hey, I didn't tell you to, you know, go to school and get an art history degree that you can't use. (laughs) That was your decision. And why should I have to pay for that? So, you know, I have, you know, some mixed feelings, I guess, on some of those things. So what, what is the role of a federal government in your view? Like what's appropriate for them? 
Well, I, so if you're asking me kind of on, on when, I'm, when I'm feeling more optimistic about the role of government, yeah. I would say you start with a bottom-up approach. So whatever that we can handle um, either in our day-to-day interactions with each other, within families or churches or communities, mm-hmm. or in free market interactions, let that take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And then if there's something that we feel like you know we can't really get together and work on, then we say, okay, is that something local government can do or state government can mm-hmm. do? I think ultimately the job of the federal government should be to make sure that states are respecting individual rights and to, I think, you know, as the Constitution says, keep unified, you know, policy as far as like monetary policy, mm-hmm. provide some of that infrastructure. But I mean, ultimately, I, what I would really like to see happen is that states and localities take more initiative. And then, you know, if California wants to go very left, California can go very left. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, Arkansas wants to go very right, then go very right. And that allows different states to, I think, really meet the needs that they see and that they want to address. Yeah. And I think that would also have a, a lot to do to kind of deal with this polarization issue because I feel like in a lot of ways we have different Americas and we're, we're all just trying to get somebody to tell everybody else what to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. What about big issues like climate change? I was afraid you'd ask me about climate change because it's one of them that I, I haven't like looked into very deeply. <laughs> okay, it's okay. Yeah, you know, I, I think ultimately though, if if government's going to have a role at all, I think it should it should make sure that we can sort of live safely with each other. Mm-hmm. And so, if climate change or pollution or any of these things are, are issues that affect us, especially you know some you know big corporation is dumping toxic sewage into wherever that goes past my house yeah. that I drink out of, yeah. I mean, that has an impact on my yeah. life, right? So, you know, ultimately, if government's there at all, it's to make sure that we, you know, don't hurt or molest each other and that right. we leave each other alone as well as we can so we can all live our lives. Sure. So so if climate change, you know, I guess I, I know that there's a spectrum a little bit. I'm not like a climate change denialist guy, okay. but there might be also some climate change alarmism on the far end. But however much of an issue it really is, I think, you know, it's fine for government to try to address that. Yeah. Uh, let me ask, I'm going to ask, I'm asking Cody, not Cody the Libertarian. Oh. Cody, the guy who's lived in Ohio his whole life. That's yeah. the next question. Because Ohio has gone, right? It went for Reagan. It went for Bush. It went for Clinton twice. And then it went for W twice. And then it went for Obama twice. And then it went for Trump back and forth. What do you think accounts for that? I mean, obviously, I think maybe with the exception of Cincinnati, I mean, especially in the north around Cleveland, Mm -hmm. definitely more liberal. So, I mean, I think it's a state that's made up of a lot of different people. Yeah. uh, A lot of different perspectives. Yeah. And then there's also these people in the middle. You know, I know that like, so for example, with Trump, there is a, you know, white nationalist contingent that's supportive. Mm -hmm. But, there's a lot of people, I think, that sort of account to the fact that about 50% of Americans voted for Trump means that 50% of Americans are white nationalists. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true. I mean, right. 13% of the people who voted for Trump, I think, voted for Obama before that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's tough to say. I mean, I think part of it is the fact that we have a lot of different, you know, yeah. places that are definitely conservative or definitely liberal. And then you have all these people in the middle that could just kind of be swayed depending yeah. on the issue. And I guess that's maybe as, as simple as it is. Yeah. Let me ask you, do you, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want, do you vote libertarian down the whole ticket? If I can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's your plan for 2020? 
I don't think I'm going to feel comfortable voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, I have some friends who voted for Trump because they thought he was safer than Hillary, not because they love yeah. Trump, because they thought he was safer. I can respect that, but it's not something I feel comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. Same time, I couldn't vote for uh, Warren or, uh, or Sanders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if Tulsi Gab- Gabbard miraculously got it, I might consider it. <laughs> but but I, I think I'd probably just have to vote libertarian because yeah. I think it's it's a perspective that I think on some level we all get. Yeah. You know, I think liberals are libertarian on social issues. Mm-hmm. Conservatives are libertarian on economic issues. Yeah. But on some level we all get we want to live our lives and just do what we need to do and not yeah. be bothered. Yeah. And so I, I think I would like the libertarian perspective to have more visibility. Sure. And so for me, even though I know that it's, it's very rare that a libertarian is going to be elected, right. I would rather lend some support to that sure. than feel like I have to take a compromise position. Sure. And you talked about your friends a couple of different times. I mean, is your peer group Republican, Democrat, mixture, libertarian? I mean, are there other libertarians that you hang out with and talk about libertarian stuff? Mostly online. The internet's kind of a fascinating thing for yeah. finding <laughs> finding people who right. agree with you, right? I would say it's pretty wide. You know, in this area, there's definitely more conservatives. Yeah. But, you know, I think liberal, I have a lot of liberal friends who I think sometimes assume I'm liberal mm-hmm. and so feel very comfortable <laughs> connecting with me. Sharing, yeah. So I have a pretty wide variety of friends. I, I don't think, you know, for example, I don't think my social media feed is an echo chamber. Right. Um, you know, I've got friends who are you know, Hispanic Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've got, yeah, it's anyway, I mean, it's, it's a wide variety for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a, this is, I, I've asked everybody this question, right? Okay. Because I feel like the experience of a presidential election in Ohio is very different than it is in most states, mm-hmm. you know, because so much money just comes in so much time, so much energy, so much effort comes in and then it leaves. And so I ask people particularly like who've lived in Ohio their whole lives, as candidates are coming in, what, what is it they need to understand about the Buckeye State that's going to resonate with them? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. I don't know. Yeah. I think one, one thing I would like Ohio voters to do, though, is, you know, I mean, maybe we feel like, you know, the prettiest girl on prom night or whatever, but yeah. because we have so much of this attention and so many candidates coming through. Yeah. But I think if we give a candidate our support, I think we should hold them accountable for the promises they make. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, for, so for example, evangelicals, right? You know, evangelicals have launched support behind Trump. Yeah. And we're afraid of taking away any of that support. Right. But I think if Trump felt that evangelicals might not support him in the 2020 election, yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> I, I, I think we, we could have a lot, we could get his ear a lot more. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also, you know, not feel like you have to compromise it. When you have, you know, the fact that Ohio voters do have such influence, and, mm-hmm. and evangelicals in particular have so much influence. You know, we, we I think we should say, you know, okay, maybe we care about Supreme Court justices and religious freedom and abortion, yeah. but maybe we should also care about, you know, kids being thrown in cages at the border. Yeah. And maybe we should use some of this influence that we have, because yeah. we have the president's here right now, because he wants us to think that he's on our side, right. to push for, I think, more across the board Christian kind of concerns. Sure. And not just the things that the Republican Party has told us that we should care about. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely got the judges that they wanted yeah. out of him, right? So, Which I didn't, necess- I didn't necessarily know that was going to happen. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised to see that happen, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Can I ask you about guns? Sure. Just because it's Ohio and it's a huge issue in Ohio. I'm curious on your perspective on gun control and gun laws. Yeah, I mean, so me, I come from a kind of a Christian tradition that is more pacifistic. Okay. So I don't much care for guns. What's kind of fascinating to me is, 
I feel like for an individual to own a gun, they're not necessarily safer. In fact, statistically, they're probably less safe. Yeah. And their family members are less safe. But I think, I do agree that the fact that somebody might have a gun, mm-hmm. so like if you're in an area where you know that people might be packing and you're a criminal, you may think differently about, mm-hmm. <laughs> about what you're going to do. I think the same thing with the state. I mean, people who are really against gun control will tell you that you know, a state that you can't trust is always going to want to try to take away your weapons. Yeah. I think that's not invalid. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if I really thought that gun control could save lives, I think I'd consider it. But especially, I mean, we're at a place now where you can 3D print a weapon. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the cases where we're seeing active shooters, they haven't really broken any laws until they decide to start opening fire. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very skeptical of the efficacy of gun control in those cases. Mm-hmm. If I thought it would really save lives and wouldn't have all these other negative side effects, I'd be open to it. Yeah. But I just, I just, I think as a, on a practical level, I don't think it makes as much sense as some of its strongest proponents are sure. arguing it does. Sure. Okay. I, mean, I got two more, and then I always give Kevin a quiet opportunity to ask questions. Okay. He's he'll have he'll talk to you for forty five more minutes. <laughs> First question. I want you to I want you to pitch libertarianism to me if somebody's like, oh, you're a libertarian. I want to know what that's about. Um, are you? Are, so am I assuming you're left wing, right wing, or or no? I don't know. Yeah, you don't know, but okay. I'm interested in the, in the point of view. Yeah. So ultimately, ultimately, libertarianism is about living your life the way you want to live it, not having to worry about someone initiating aggression against you when you haven't done anything to them, so that you know whether you you know, are, you know, minority sexual, you know, uh, sexuality or something, whatever it is the case, whatever, however you want to live your life. If you're an evangelical Christian, if you want to homeschool your kids, if you want to own a firearm, if you don't want to own a firearm, um, basically this is the, this is the kind of political perspective that you should want to come to minding your own business. Also the fact that if you tend to tend to be someone who thinks that, uh, that laws work in many cases, they don't, a lot of the regulation that we see, is not that effective. Yeah. And I think people on the left and right know that. People on the left will tell you that if we outlaw abortion, it'll still happen. People on the right tell you if we outlaw guns, people will still get them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, I think coming from a perspective of, you know, the government often messes us up. Yeah. A lot of the legislation doesn't work. Yeah. And ultimately, we just want to mind our business and live our lives. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that if you hold to that kind of perspective or that makes sense to you, you should start checking out libertarianism. And then... With, and then how do you bring your Christian perspective into it, right? The, the idea that yeah. you take care of your neighbor. Absolutely. Is it just you come to that on your own? Yeah. So in, in, so there's a book I wrote um, called Fight the Powers, uh, and I don't remember the subtitle. But it's uh, what I actually do is I build a, an argument for how the Bible sees the state and how it sees political power. And then I come to some conclusions, although I don't strongly advocate for libertarianism in the book. I try to give broad guidelines for whoever you happen to be. Right. But ultimately, for me, libertarianism makes sense from a Christian perspective because as a Christian, you want to live in a state where you are allowed to live your faith, mm-hmm. proclaim your faith. People are allowed to accept or reject it. And you also don't want to build a kind of a society where it's the government's job to start regulating religious views. I know there's some Christians who think that, you know, we want the government to, you know, tell the gays where to get off or not where to get off, but, or, you know, deal with the, the Muslim yeah. issue or whatever you yeah. want to say. You know, once you get government involved in an issue like that, it's not going to take long before the tide rolls against you. Yeah. 
So for me, being a Christian means that you want to live in a society. I think it's a Peter who says that, you know, pray for the, for the, for the king or for the emperor that you could, you know, basically live your lives in harmony and be left alone. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's part of it. I think the fact of the matter is that the state is always force. Mm-hmm. Any law that is passed is passed at the end of the barrel of a gun. Yeah. And so that's, I think, a big argument against, I mean, ultimately, what I would say is if you're going to pass a law, you're going to have to ask yourself, would I mind if someone was killed with this law being enforced? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you don't mind, then maybe that's an okay law. Yeah. <laughs> but if you do mind, we probably shouldn't, you know, enforce such a law. Yeah. And so I think for me, you know, Christians should be, you know, want to be able to live their life freely, want to be able to preach the gospel freely, and shouldn't want to be initiating aggression against people mm-hmm. who haven't done anything to them. So, yeah. I mean, I think loving your neighbor means not initiating aggression yeah. against them. Yeah. And and so I do think, you know, as as communities and, you know, even, you know, giving in, you know, room for local government or whatever in, in some yeah. cases, I think we can take care of these things a lot better than the government can. Yeah. If, if the only way we could, so if there's something that we view as essential, whether it's roads or healthcare or whatever, and we say, we don't think the free market can handle it, then we can maybe talk about it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, on almost every issue where I've seen government intervene, it's been not as effective as we'd hoped. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Okay. A prediction for Ohio in 2020. You know, I don't know. I, there were so many people who were sure that Trump wasn't going to win. Yeah. And I did, I understood where they were coming from. Yeah. But I did not feel safe saying that he wasn't going to win. Yeah. And I still don't. Yeah. I really don't. I mean, I think there are people now who are such pessimists who think that he's definitely going to win. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he's like a juggernaut. I mean, right. he didn't win the popular vote. Yeah. And I think all it takes is somebody on the left who can get some of these people who are in the middle, who right. could have won either way, more excited. Might be tougher because the economy is doing pretty well right now. Mm-hmm. And if the economy is doing well, people feel if it's not broke, don't, fix, don't try to fix right. it. Right. So I'd say he has an edge there, but I think the fact that very few people who voted for Trump loved Trump mm-hmm. is puts him at some disadvantage depending on who the Democratic Party picks. Gotcha. Who, who do you think has the best chance of beating him? Probably, God help us, Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, probably has the best chance. I mean, I think Trump's probably best asset is that he's an ass. Mm-hmm. And so I think Trump against Hillary or Trump even against Warren, I think he has some advantages there because he can be aggressive or critical or nasty. Mm-hmm. And I think Warren is somebody who can't really do that and look good mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think Gabbard probably could, Tulsi Gabbard probably could, but I think especially a guy like Bernie Sanders, who's this kind of no-nonsense, older Jewish New Yorker guy, (laughs) type guy, you know, he just definitely has this, like, I could definitely see him sparring verbally with Trump and coming out looking better. Sure. Warren, I don't see that. Right. Biden probably could. I think Biden's this kind of, you know, has a a slightly tough guy persona where he could probably do that, get away with it. Yeah. Like, as if Warren would take the high road rather than get like that. She would either take the high road or I think she could, I think she could come off looking, um, too offended or sensitive to criticism. Yeah. And then maybe kind of look maybe histrionic or weak mm-hmm. as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think some of the, the candidates who can posture themselves a little more strongly maybe could come out better in that. Yeah.
That's that's kind of not my feeling on it anyway. Because she's a woman, or just because of not just she, because she's a woman? Because I think Tulsi Gabbard could do it. Yeah, I got you. I mean, you look at, you look at how Tulsi interacted with Kamala Harris. Yeah, I mean, she definitely got the better of that exchange. But yeah. I think I don't know. I don't know if it's just <laughs> I don't know if it's something as um, superficial as Warren's voice, but she always sort of seems like she's mm-hmm. choking up a little bit. Yeah, I guess. And I think. You know, she didn't get, I don't really think she got the best of the Pocahontas <laughs> interaction. So I just think in some of those situations, Trump looks tougher. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to have a Democrat who's going to look good against Trump, mm-hmm. he has to make Trump look foolish. Okay. He has to get the better of those kinds of interactions. Yeah. Okay. Or she. Yeah. How do you think this went? I think it went okay. What do you think? Yeah, I think you happy it was great. It? it was fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Kev, you happy? Yeah, I'm thrilled. Good. All right. Good. Nice I think that does us. Yeah. Do you have any other libertarians you've done so far? Or is this well, you are the first. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So I'll stand yeah. out a little bit. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, let me grab that mic. Oh yeah. I'll, 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 I'll take that home. We'll be listening to you all night. <laughs> what's the What's the naked gun where he goes to the bathroom? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so good. Also, first naked gun reference on this. Break. <laughs> You're really killing it. And once again, that was Cody Cook, which we recorded in the late fall, early winter of 2019. So this past week, we caught up over Zoom, and I wanted to share that conversation as well. First off, I just want to ask how you're doing, how you've been going the past year. Are you and your family staying safe and uh, how you've been handling the pandemic? We've been doing fine. We've tried to, you know, take it seriously and be cautious, especially because my uh, wife is a type 1 diabetic with some... Mm. Um, uh, we call it kind of immunodeficiency type issues. Um, and we uh, decided to have a baby right before the pandemic hit. So <laughs> she was also pregnant uh, until very recently. Wow. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. So, but anyway, so, so because of all that, we've obviously been trying to be as careful as we can be. Um, but we're both, um, you know, we, we both kind of are homebodies, so it hasn't, hasn't been too terrible for the most part. Um, it's been inconvenient in some ways, obviously, being uh, able to kind of meet with friends and family as easily has not been right. kind of a feature of our lives. But Right. So let, let me ask you, though, I mean, do you think the pandemic has become kind of a central issue for the election? I think it probably has. I, I, I'd seen something recently about kind of, you know, slipping support among seniors for Trump when older, mm-hmm. older folks tend to vote more conservative. Right. Um, and I suspect that Trump trying to sort of downplay Corona for I suspect personal political reasons. Yeah. Um, among older people who are seeing some of their friends deal with this disease and really, you know, sometimes dying because of it. Yeah. And also because these are people who see their doctors regularly and they trust what their doctors tell them. Yeah. Um, and so when a guy like Trump is the president sort of goes up and says, ah, forget all that. It's not a yeah. big deal. I think that, I think they start to maybe lose a little bit of confidence in his judgment. What is your take on how he's handled the pandemic? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you may kind of recall that I, I came from a libertarian perspective. Yep. And I think that there's different ways you could argue this. Like on the one hand, does this kind of non-masking, non-distancing behavior during a pandemic qualify as aggression? So mm-hmm. for a libertarian, right. it's, not, it's that non-aggression principle that's important. Right. And um, I think if you argue that it does, then I think some government um, enforcement becomes uh, justifiable, but only if it's practical. I think there are some questions about how that really works when you're trying to enforce these mandates, because on the one hand, I I think very early we saw that these mandates caused resistance from people who wanted to just kind of come up with an excuse for a conspiracy theory about why they shouldn't trust it. Sure. Um, 
And then there's also that kind of question, how do you enforce it? Because you ultimately are having to bring police into contact with people and then put these people in jail or whatever. Yeah. And, and that doesn't really make sense for managing the spread. Yeah. So what I would say at minimum, the government should have been doing is providing reliable information. Yeah. And I think Trump um, absolutely botched that. Yeah. And so if, if nothing else, you know, whether you, you take the view that you should have been doing more as far as, you know, federal mandates or whatever, right. he, he dropped the ball at the most basic level, which was that he, he essentially lied knowingly about some of the threats and some of the dangers because it was convenient for him politically to do so. Yeah. I do remember talking with you a lot about this idea of aggression kind of at the the heart of it. So would, is there, is there a vein of libertarianism, which would say, if I'm not wearing a mask and I'm out in public and my, my droplets might come out and, and get somebody sick, that that's a form of aggression. Yeah. There's certainly some that would say that. I think it's, I think with something like this, it becomes, it's complicated, right? Because on the one hand, if you aren't showing symptoms, you don't have any reason to believe that you're sick. Yeah. Is it really aggression? I mean, so I, I guess there's this question of how far back do you take it? Yeah. Um, you know, and something like the flu, which is not obviously as dangerous as COVID, yeah. but it's still, you know, you could, you could give it to somebody who could die from it if they're sure. you know, compromised with, are you obligated to stay home, to mask up the distance? And I think traditionally we haven't really given that much thought. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think we're starting to ask these questions now, but so anyway, I think it's difficult as far as where you want to draw that line, but I think it's at least a conversation that's, that's been taking place in some libertarian yeah. circles. I think, um, some people who I knew who are libertarians early on, I think were kind of deniers of the threat. And I think it was partly because they just didn't really, they hadn't really thought about how government response to a pandemic should work. Yeah. And it was just easier for them to say that this isn't really anything to be concerned about yeah. <laughs> than it was yeah. to come up with a, a sophisticated response yeah. to this complicated question. Where do you come down on, on masks? Uh, we wear them. You know, I, I know that there's some... Um, there have been very limited studies. I think there's some common knowledge or common wisdom that it should be helpful because they're yeah. used in surgery and they've been shown to be beneficial there. I know that there was a, a research study done recently that suggested they might not be as helpful as we hope. Yeah. Um, but um, it's something that we've certainly done just to be, I think, to be safe and also to be courteous. I think even if, because at the time we weren't necessarily sure exactly how much it helped, but it's like, you know, we, there were these things that were saying, these memes by, uh, you know, Trumpers, saying things like, um, you know, if the masks are safe, why do we have to social distance and stuff mm-hmm. like that? It's sort of like saying, well, if the seatbelts work, then why do we, uh, you know, why do we have airbags? Right, right. <laughs> and so it seemed that it could at least, um, it made sense at the very least that it could be part of something that could help slow the spread. Now, whether that's been as helpful as we hope, I, I don't know. I think there's going to have to be a lot more research done and yeah. it sure is being done to, to yeah. show that. But it made sense to me to, to do it though. Yeah. Well, I remember uh, you told me, and actually I just was reading through the transcript of our interview before we got on, but you told me uh, when we had talked, the economy was doing quite well. And, mm. you know, you said this is going to be a, a big advantage for Trump that's going to be yeah. difficult for, for anyone to overcome. Do you think that he is going to take the blame for the economy tanking because of the virus? Whether he will or whether, I mean, whether he'll take it or people assign it to him is a different question, whether he deserves it. I mean, I think on some level, mismanagement. You can blame him for a little bit of it, but ultimately it's, it's kind of something that just sort of happened. I mean, it's, it wasn't entirely his fault that it, that it we're dealing with it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I think he might, I think more than the economy though. Yeah. He, at that point it was advantage Trump with the economy. At this point, I think the economy, maybe people remember back before COVID that it was doing well and think that he can bring it back again. So that I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe that's a bit of a, 
I don't know. Yeah. I, I do think of the kind of the BLM and Antifa stuff and some of the kind of more egregious examples of like sort of more violent protests could help Trump. Yeah. Um, I think back to, um, you know, LBJ winning in uh, the election in 64 after running a pro civil rights campaign, mm -hmm. which suggested that there were a lot of white people uh, at the time who thought, you know, well, sure, you know, there's, it's not really fair the way we, for black people, the way that we're running our system. But then, you know, of course, Nixon won a few years later because yeah. a lot of that goodwill and sympathy from white people went away after they saw riots in the streets. And so as much as they wanted to be sympathetic to apply to black people, they, they were a little more concerned about law and order. Yeah. And I think Biden's a good pick for the Democratic Party because he is much more moderate. He's not really from that more radical wing of yeah. the, the, the Democratic Party, like some friends of mine who justified riots. But Trump is doing his best to pin it on him if he can, which I, yeah. I don't think really works. But maybe maybe it'll pay off for yeah. some people who aren't very informed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you said last time I asked you, I said, well, what Democrat has the best chance against Trump? And you said, and this is your direct quote, God help us, Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What do you think of him and how, how he's run his campaign? And I mean, just your take on him as a candidate. Sure. I think COVID helped him out a lot early on because he's somebody who's very gaff prone mm -hmm. and to have an excuse to not come out and say things was, was advantage for him. Sure. Um, the debates, uh, the one debate, Trump looked terrible because he was such an ass. But at the same time, he kept interrupting Biden. So Biden could have gaffed if he would have let him, but yeah. he didn't have a chance to. And so yeah. I think Biden looked a lot better. I don't think... And I don't think Biden's a very good libertarian candidate. I think it's interesting that I have a lot of friends who are saying, you know, who are kind of more progressive, who are saying, you know, yeah, we may not like Biden, but this is an issue of our, our friends of, you know, color and whatever dying in the streets mm -hmm. because of Trump policies. And I sort of think, well, you know, Kamala Harris and Biden have certainly not been friends to, I think, the African-American community. And I, and I think, I mean, I feel weird saying this, but I think you can make an argument that Trump has been more positive for black people in America than Biden and, and Harris have. Because he doesn't like Biden worked on the crime bill and Harris was a prosecutor and Trump doesn't have that kind of track record or doesn't have that kind of track record. But there's also been certain things that he's gotten behind some criminal justice reform issues, uh, funding of uh, historically black colleges and universities, things that I think if he were a liberal candidate, he would have gotten a lot of credit for. I see. Um, you know what I mean? And so I think when you, when you kind of stack those things up, I think Trump, I mean, he doesn't have nearly as much of, of a track record to compare, but in the last four years compared to, you know, Joe's 40 or whatever, I think, uh, I think Trump, you could argue, has, has been better for black people. Now, maybe some of the law and order stuff um, kind of sticking up for police, you could argue goes the other direction, but. Hi, this is Pete. I'm stepping out of this sort of catch-up interview because at this point, I just moved the interview forward. But then as I was listening back to it, I realized that I really, I missed a follow-up question that I should have asked Cody at this point. And that was, does he think that these friends of his who are leaning towards Biden because they're concerned about Trump's policy towards African Americans were maybe not cluing into policy, but more the things that the president has said or done that are perceived to be or are racist. And so what I did was I, I held the episode up a day. I emailed Cody just to ask him about this. And I said, uh, what I wish I had followed up with is, do you think the people who are saying this are tuning into the real or perceived racism that President Trump has displayed? In other words, are things like his comments on Charlottesville and his telling four congresswomen of color to go back where they came from and his Muslim immigration ban and other words and deeds like this concerning enough to people that that's what has them leaning for Biden? And Cody got back to me and he, he said, you know, in his normal, thoughtful way, 
I think his actions and comments regarding immigrants are laced with nationalistic bigotry, though on the question of African Americans in particular, I don't think he's necessarily been worse than Biden. On Charlottesville, I think Trump was intentionally taken out of context by the left for political reasons. Often he brings that on himself with his poorly worded comments, but I think he was relatively clear here. And then he he quotes the extended uh, quote from President Trump about Charlottesville, which does give it more context. Uh, But his takeaway is, if Trump had really been as clearly racist toward black people as he said to be, this statement would not be the go-to example of his critics. They would have far better examples of this. On the subject of immigration, I suppose, the question for those who care about this issue, myself included, is whether Biden has truly grown, or at least is willing to pretend he has by supporting policy that suggests it, since his role less than four years ago in the administration of the so-called deporter-in-chief. And so there he is pointing out the Obama administration had deported more immigrants than the previous administrations had, and Obama was called the deporter-in-chief. I think, from my perspective, the difference is that Trump took it further. He tried to make immigrants an evil presence that he could set himself up against. And so, again, a a bad follow-up question for me, because we got into the particulars of specific statements. But I think the takeaway here is, Cody is not buying all the hype that the president is racist, right? He says, we would have better examples. From my perspective, there are better examples. There's hundreds of them. But I don't think going down that rabbit hole is is what we're needed. I really just wanted to know, was his take on his on his friends that he said are leaning towards Biden? Could this at all be impacting how they're thinking about it? It's clearly not for him. Uh, not sure about his friends. So, And this is on me. I hate it when my I miss a follow-up or my questions get less precise than I'd like them to be. Uh, but Thank you again, Cody, for for answering my follow-up by email, and, and hopefully I've done it justice in this outtake here. Okay, let's get back to it. Well, and I know there's a libertarian candidate, and I don't want to discount that, but what do you think is the libertarian take on those two candidates? Where, where, where would they lean if they had to choose one or the other? I think it depends. I think there are um, libertarians who... I think see Trump the way a lot of people do, where he's just this kind of visceral existential sort of threat to, I think, decency. Yeah. And so I think there, I, I have some, um, you know, libertarian friends who are going to vote for Biden just because I think they see Trump as dangerous in that way. Yeah. But then I've got other libertarian friends who see the kind of the rise of the radical left and some of the more aggressive protests and, you know, and other factors as well. And I think they sort of say, well, we don't love Trump, but maybe Trump is a way to, uh, stave off this, you know, uh, downward decline toward, you know, radical left-wing politics. So I think the response has been varied. I, I yeah. don't think that either of them are necessarily very well liked um, yeah. amongst libertarians. I don't really buy the argument that Trump staves off the downwards decline toward the radical left, because I think, let's say Biden wins, um, that sends a message um, to the Democratic Party that they can win with a moderate. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sort of shuts down some of the arguments of the more radical progressive left. That's one. Yeah. Um, but I think if, if Trump wins, that activates the, the left-wing base more. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think the progressives say, okay, you tried with Biden, you got to give us a shot now. Yeah. And so I think things move more faster, more fastly to the left. Also, Trump is such, is such a big target yeah. uh, for, for progressives that I think, um, I think we move faster toward the left with another Trump presidency. Sure. Let me ask you now, uh, first we'll talk about Ohio. Just w- which way do you think Ohio is going to go now? We've got about two weeks before the election. And then, and also nationally, do you have an idea who you think is going to win? 
Um, I think Biden has some advantages, but you know, I wasn't one of those people that was so confident four years ago that that Hillary right. was going to win. Right. Um, I think he does. I think Biden does have some advantages. I think, but I, but I, I, it's really honestly, it's, it's so tough for me to say exactly yeah. the way it's going to go. There's also a lot that could happen, and you know, my gosh, not very long, a couple, just a few weeks now. But yeah, um, yeah. Well, Cody, you're a smart guy, and you always. You're really good at analyzing and offering up both sides of, of each question I ask, but where, where do you think you're going to come down? Um, I'm not the kind of person who um, likes to, I don't know, likes to make decisions that I don't really feel good about. Sure. I feel pretty good about uh, Joe Jorgensen, the Libertarian candidate. Okay. Um, she's not perfect. She's actually she's not nearly as, um, you know, on a personal level, she's not as interesting or exciting or engaging as, yeah. <laughs> as like a Trump. Yeah, uh, but I think that ultimately the policies of libertarianism, the benefit is they don't have to be exciting. It's basically yeah. just saying, you know, hey, we would like the government to sort of limit what it does and stay out of your way as much as possible, so you can live your life the way you see fit. Yeah, and so I, I feel pretty good about that decision. I know, you know I, I have a mom who's uh, my mother is very uh, anti-Trump and, and is upset mm-hmm. with that. I'm going to vote third party, but I think where I am right now, I, I'm just so not really pleased with either the mainstream options that if yeah. I didn't vote Jorgensen, I'd stay home. So it's not between. Yeah. Jorgensen and Biden or Jorgensen and Trump. It's Jorgensen right. and Trump. <laughs> sure. I got you. That makes sense. Well, how are you feeling just in general about our state of affairs? You, you know, I, I just, I did um, kind of a short um, podcast sometime ago, video cast that was, I think it was called Everything's on Fire and We All Hate Each Other, something yes. like that. <laughs> and um, and that there's so many factors as to why I think this is happening the way it is. I think one thing is we've made politics a religion. And maybe we talked about that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, some months ago, but um, we've kind of lost these centering things that we used to have in, as communities where we had family or we had you know, community involvement, we had church involvement. And so we've really pinned our identity on, on political party, which is weird. Yeah. Um, I think that's one. Um, the other thing is I think social media um, has this sort of way of dehumanizing our arguments or we sort of take them out of, uh, we sort of forget that we're talking to other people. Um, and I think that's had a negative impact. I think it also has a, a tendency to appeal to fear because it's, you know, it appeals to that lizard brain part of us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's kind of all these factors that are coming together that have created a, a scenario where I think we are just very distrustful of each other. We've kind of arranged tribally along political lines. And I, and I guess, you know, once again, that's the appeal of libertarianism to me because it's basically saying, Hey, if you want to create a, you know, a, a, a civic, you know, organization or, or community or whatever uh, that leans right or leans left or, or cares about social justice, or cares about this or whatever, you do that. Yeah. Um, but you don't necessarily have to sort of go in and say, well, I'm going to vote for this guy to force my will on you. And I think part of the issue is we are just, we're a very big country that's very closely connected because of the internet now. Yeah. And we sort of want one guy to speak for all of us or one yeah. woman, you know, whatever. And I, I just don't think that's feasible. And yeah. I think the more we decentralize them, the more, of the possibility we have to kind of create our own communities and live together and agree to disagree on some things. But I think the stakes feel so high because ultimately whoever we choose is going to force their will on everybody else who doesn't like it. And I think, I think that's part of what scares people also. It's always good talking with you. Uh, is, <laughs> is there anything that I should have asked that I haven't asked today, just in terms of catching up over the past nine months? I don't know if there's much that I haven't really um, but I haven't really covered as far as kind of my, my, my central concerns. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess we I guess we've kind of covered it. Yeah, cool. 
My thanks once more to Cody Cook for his time on this project. Once again, you can find Cody's books on Amazon and his podcast is Cantus Firmus. That's C-A-N-T-U-S-F-I-R-M-U-S, which is available wherever you get podcasts or at cantus-firmus.com. We are continuing to release the interviews we were able to shoot before the pandemic as standalone podcast episodes, and we will be back again in just a few days with our next one. If you're enjoying the show, please do tell a friend about it or leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps. For the all-volunteer crew of This Is Ohio 2020, I'm Pete Brown saying, good times, everyone. Good times. This is Ohio 2020 is a podcast and documentary film project produced by Blue Monkey Communications, written and directed by me, Pete Brown, with production and post-production ably handled by Kevin Davison of Twittering Machine Productions. Music and sound effects in today's show may come from the websites freesound.org, incompetech.com, or podcastmusic.com, and in general is licensed under Creative Commons 3.0. Additional music and interstitials by Brian Hake and Kevin Davison. Until next time, I'm Pete Brown for This is Ohio 2020, wishing you and yours good times.